1: Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, Alternative Media for Discerning Minds. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again, and if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members for your loyalty and support. Tonight's special guest is Michael Tallinger, scientist, explorer, and internationally acclaimed author who has become an authority on the origins of humankind and the vanished civilizations of Southern Africa. Michael Tellinger and a team of leading scientists showed that the Sumerians and even the Egyptians inherited all their knowledge from an earlier civilization that lived at the Southern tip of Africa more than 200,000 years ago, mining gold. Sounds familiar? We'll also be discussing some of the work of the late Zachariah Sitchin. Michael Tellinger will be with us shortly. And speaking of Michael Tellinger, he and I will be at the East City Ranch from June 24th through the 27th with other great speakers, including Bob Dean, Dr. Carol Rawson, Jenny Lamb, Neil Kramer, and of course, James Gilliland, in a magnificent setting on one of the most famous UFO hotspots in the world. So go to our website and click on the banner for more information. I hope to see you there. To listen to tonight's full show, become a Veritas member. Just go to our website, veritasshow.com, click on the subscribe button, and instantly enjoy all of our material. Over 132 shows, Veritas TV, and the very exclusive Manticore Forum for people around the world interact and post news and important information we don't have the time to discuss here. So don't wait any longer. For only $7.95 per month. You can listen in CD audio quality and take Veritas with you wherever you go. Subscribe today. And if you don't have the time to be downloading all our shows, you have a slow internet connection or are a collector, purchase our futuristic eight gigabyte metal case, USB drive with the seasons one or two, including bonus material. Go to the Veritas store. And don't forget, get your MMS right from us. If you have heard the term MMS but don't know what it is, go to the past shows and do yourself a favor, listen to the interview with Jim Humble called Jim Humble versus the FDA. And if you want a Veritas subscription but cannot afford it, go to the free subscription link of our website and find out how you can get one. We are actually creating the Veritas transcription team so that we can transcribe all our shows. And if you need to get in touch with me, Go to our website and click on the contact button and join me on Facebook. And now, get ready to explore the truth about the origins of humankind and how the knowledge left by the ancient ones can be used to save the future of our world. Scholars have told us that the first civilization on Earth emerged in a land called Sumer some 6,000 years ago. But new archaeological and scientific discoveries, made by Michael Tellinger and a team of leading scientists, show that the Sumerians and even the Egyptians inherited all their knowledge from an earlier civilization that lived at the southern tip of Africa more than 200,000 years ago, mining gold. Were we the slaves mining that gold? And has the gold mine been transformed into the 9 to 5 matrix? For the answers to these and many more questions, Michael Tellinger is coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere.
0: and you're listening to
2: Veritas Radio.
1: Michael Tellinger is an author, scientist, explorer, musician, an actor, a true Renaissance man, or 21st century Leonardo da Vinci. Michael became a real-life Indiana Jones, making groundbreaking discoveries about ancient vanished civilizations at the southern tip of Africa, His continued efforts and analytical scientific approach have produced stunning new evidence that will force us to rethink our origins and rewrite our history books. He has become one of South Africa's best-selling expert authors. His regular articles on human origins and his books have been praised by readers in over 20 countries. He is the author of Adam's Calendar, Slave Species of God, and his latest, Temples of the African Gods and directly from Panama City, Florida, somewhere in the United States, where he's conducting a 28-city tour from May the 6th through July 15th, 2011, and he will also be at the E-City Conference in Trout Lake, Washington from June 24th through the 27th, where I will also be attending and moderating a panel discussion with Michael and other speakers. It is my pleasure to introduce for the first time on Veritas another fellow truth seeker, Michael Tellinger. Hello, Michael, and welcome to Veritas, how are you?
2: Excellent, I'm very well, thank you. A little uh, a little worn from the roads today, but uh, very nice to be speaking to you, Mal.
1: My pleasure, thank you for making the time. Folks, we've been communicating for the last uh, few weeks, and Michael, every time I talk to him, he's been in a different continent, so at least uh, I'm glad he's in my continent today. I, I must admit, I'm new to your work, Michael. In the past few days, I've been doing a lot of research about you, and let me tell you, I'm, I'm a dry sponge tonight, and I'm ready to absorb it all. I know our worldwide audience will be very satisfied with what they're about to experience. For those who may not know who you are, give us some background of yourself, and I know you've done a lot, but I'm curious to know what shaped the Michael Tellinger we know today.
2: Well, thanks very much. It's um uh, it's always difficult to talk about yourself. I personally don't like it. it. It 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 feels like, you know, a little gloating session or whatever, but but um you know, I started out life in a musical family. Um being brought up in a classical music family. My mother was an opera singer in Europe and um and I was constantly surrounded by musicians and and uh, I attended classical concerts from a very early age and operas and so forth. And then It was obvious that I always thought I would go into the music business or music industry. It was just a natural extension. I didn't even consider anything else. Um, That didn't turn out to be the case uh, in many ways because when I finished uh, school, I went on to um, the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, South Africa. That's the big sort of um, uh, status university in South Africa with the big medical school that's produced a lot of uh, historic uh, stuff. And uh, I studied pharmaceutics at, at the medical school and uh, graduated in uh, 1983. Um, and uh, while I was studying, I was actively participating in the musical industry uh, and playing a lot of golf. And uh, <laughs> I played I played uh, music and, on stages. Uh, I did, for example, Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat for about three years that ran. I played the part of Joseph. Um, and then I had a band and a duo with uh, uh, called Sterling and Tellinger and we, we had a few hits in South Africa and and so it went and uh, then in 1985 we came to the USA, we recorded an album in Nashville, believe it or not and um, lo and behold we found, uh, I'm going into a little bit more depth here because it's actually an interesting twist to the tale which which helps to form the character that I am today. Right, uh, and and then we found to our shock and horror that because we were white South Africans, they no American label would touch us with a barge pole, uh, while mm. a, a lot of the black South African musicians were being signed up and and whined and dined in Los Angeles. Nobody would ta- would even you know talk to us. It was a very interesting experience
1: Absolute, because of apartheid.
2: Absolutely, there was a there was a, a thing going on called a cultural boycott. Uh, that very few people in, in, around the world are aware of. And um, if you're a white South African musician, your your, uh, your career was, that's it, you were doomed. And um, so I went back to South Africa and carried on in the music industry and slowly but surely got involved in various other things like advertising and so forth. And uh, I, I was writer, I was a writer in advertising. But
1: and, l- uh, let me just interject for a second here. Didn't you write a song that they got you in trouble with the government, that you were harassed and they even... Your phone at one time.
2: Oh yeah, that I actually wrote that while living in Los Angeles for a year, uh, trying to get a deal. And then uh, um, the little Stephen Van Zandt um, released that song called uh, "Ain't Gonna Play Sun City," uh-huh. which was an anti-apartheid song with all the American musicians, and um, <clears throat> I mean all the big names were in it. And it was a it was not a very accurate depiction of the situation. And and. I got quite upset by that, and I thought, well, if anyone should write that kind of song, it should be a South African from uh, an accurate perspective, and I wrote a song called We Come from Johannesburg, which is a very staunch anti-apartheid song, Um, and and I went back to South Africa, and I spent every last cent I had (laughs) recording it and releasing it, thinking that this is going to be the big thing that, you know, gets people to to sit and pay attention to the apartheid problem and so forth because I've just come from America and I experienced the reverse, reverse um, discrimination myself um, and it, it just um, unfortunately backfired because it was banned and uh, I was threatened a few times and uh, it was interesting times
1: Very very interesting. I had a similar conversation with uh, Wayne Herschel. At any rate Michael from an early age you were called a jack of all trades which in today's society is frowned upon because society wants you to specialize in something, get married and live your life in the proverbial matrix. Anyone who deviates is told what's wrong with you. Tell us why you think society, and we'll get into all the research in a minute, but tell us why you think society has built those expectations around us. It's as if they don't want us to find the truth of who we are.
2: Well, it's exactly what you're saying, Mel. It's uh, and, and I was just driving with my girlfriend Daryl uh, t- today on on our way from Tampa to to Panama City and talking about exactly that kind of thing because as you start to wake up and as you as you grow in consciousness and you start to your eyes open to the truths and the the real activities around you, you start to recognize these little um, little institutions that have been put into place for us to keep us enslaved and entrapped in in certain paradigms and and um and archetypes and so forth and and role models that are created for us that are that are so far removed from the natural order of things that it it's quite scary and one of these things is the whole education system that we have the education system and as you said the expectations that are placed on us and uh it is it, it flies in the face of what we naturally want to do as human beings. And and I'd like to come back to this later because what I find fascinating is that the research that I'm doing and the discoveries I'm making are directly linked to where we are going as a species and rediscovering our natural or our, our sort of God-given um, talents and gifts that that is the way ahead as opposed to the structures that have been put in place and what we what i'm finding is that we re relearning this or the the vanished civilizations of southern africa that i'm finding i'm finding interesting clues in those civilizations or what they left behind from what we can start to learn how to move ahead as a society today and it's it's a really interesting, strange twist of events that has brought us here. And the fact that we are forced into, into, you know, go and get a career, go and study something, get a good career, get a good education so you can get yourself a good job and a good career. Right. Those are the boxes that society, that the institutions that control us have created for us because they don't want us to get out of those boxes.
1: Absolutely. And that's where I used to be, not anymore. But recently I had a conversation with Michael Cremo. He was supposed to conduct a presentation. I don't remember if it was in Russia or in Europe, speaking of academia. At any rate, the university canceled his presentation after they found out what he was going to be talking about. Well, the students and some professors were so upset that they set up an alternate location outside of the university where double the people showed up. I guess because now they were more curious to know what he was going to be covering. It's always academia. Have you gone through a similar situation?
2: Oh, you have no idea. Uh, I mean, the academics in South Africa uh, refuse to talk to me. They refused to meet with me. They, when my name comes up in conversation, they just shut it down it's spectacular. It's, uh, yeah. There are, however, a few that have just recently come out and emailed me and said they're very interested in my work and the research. And, and uh, strangely enough, they come from slightly different areas. The one email I got is from the head of Arabic Religious Studies at the University of South Africa, who's asked me to come and do a presentation to his department, and he wants to invite all the archaeologists and historians, because he, he says, well, his email to me said that what he's reading in my work uh, is very much in line with the Arabic historic studies. Now, isn't that an interesting twist of of, of uh, fate here, or situation? I find it very... Very,
1: very ironic, yes. Yeah. And you know, Michael, on this show, as conscious beings that we are, we're always looking for the answers to what you call the holy trinity of human questions. I like that, by the way. In all your journeys and research, have you been able to find the answers to who are we, where do we come from, and why are we here?
2: Uh, No, I don't think uh, too many people have found those answers, uh, if any. Um, I think we have a lot of interesting clues that point us in some very interesting and and ever increasingly exciting directions, um, because I believe this is all. These questions are slowly but surely being answered, with the, with the with the rapid rise of consciousness, um, and as more and more people like you and me and many others are exploring these and are opening themselves to receiving information through the cosmic, um, um, you know, database, if you want to call it that. Um, which is being downloaded by millions of people every day, and waking up to new realities. Um, as we move ahead, move forward and 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 get more of this information, I think we're getting closer and closer to some very interesting answers: who we are, where we come from, and why we're we here. But there, the, within those three questions, what I call the the great human puzzle, are are our mul, are multitude of other, um, you know other questions that that lie hidden beneath those three main ones um... and the the first thing that i i always remind people of is that the history of our planet is a lot stranger than we could ever possibly imagine and uh... i mean very no one describes it better than michael cremo in his work and his research you know mm-hmm. and uh... what i'm finding and discovering is certainly adding a whole lot to that body of evidence um, and then you've got the phenomenal people like um, Klaus Donner, whose who's, who's artifact collection and work is, is presenting a whole new paradigm on, on the history on this planet. And when I say the history of this planet is a lot stranger than most people realize, I'm not just t- talking about the history of, of the human beings. I'm talking about other other beings of a similar shape, but different sizes that have lived on this planet, from tiny creatures that are human humanoid-like to giants that are, you know, seven and a half meters tall that have walked on this planet. The evidences are all around us and 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 goes back millions and millions of years, and not just a few hundred thousand years, where the Homo sapiens suddenly seem to appear on this planet. So, who are we, where do we come from, and why are we here? Has Has three simple questions that have a and a, a very deep and a many, many layered answer and a fascinating study to be involved in.
1: And you know, Michael, a lot of, of what you're saying has been mythologized. History has been mythologized, but I think you and some other researchers are demythologizing history in a way. Would you agree?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And And there's another interesting thing that I found when I started looking around at the meaning of words. I found in a a few sources that refer to the word mythology in in Greek. Mythos. It comes from the Greek mythos. uh, A very very interesting uh, definition, which has nothing to do with imaginary or fairy tale, but actually is defined as um, stories and legends, historic events that are sworn to be accurate and true by priests and kings. Now, when I saw that, I suddenly went, hold on, this is, a, this is not mythology or mythos, does not mean imaginary or fairy tale stories that somebody wrote down. It actually means completely the opposite. Right. It actually, and when you realize this, you start to realize how, uh, but, well, so when you read these so-called mythological stories from the ancient um, cultures, you're basically reading, um, you know, testimonies that are sworn to be accurate and true by these <laughs> ancient people. Uh, and uh, and uh, I often point this out to people. So every time you think about mythology, just think about mythology is actually our history. And then suddenly our history changes completely.
1: You see, this is an aha moment for me. This is something that you will never hear in the mainstream or even academia but you know Michael I was privileged to have conducted Sakharaya Sitchin's last interview as you know Sakharaya really didn't conduct long interviews therefore some of my questions remained unanswered I know that you have devoured his work through the years aside from the questions that I have for you tonight is it okay if I ask you some of the questions that remain unanswered that I think may be relevant and related to your work
2: absolutely I uh, you're quite right. I have devoured Sitchin's work, and I'm deeply um, um, saddened that he's not here for yeah. various reasons. But one of the main reasons is that what I am finding, and is is pretty much the physical evidence that Zachariah had been writing about for most of his life, that was unsubstantiated, and as you know, he had received a lot of flack, and attractions oh, yeah. from a lot of academics and other individuals, because he he wasn't really able to support a lot of that that writing and the translations. So what I'm finding is now s- the physical evidence and substati- substantiation for much of what he wrote. And that is extremely exciting times for us. My, the sadness is that I believe if he was alive, he would have been able to look at the physical evidence and the materials and the tools and artifacts and the ruins that i'm finding and and exploring and he would have been able to to identify things a lot quicker than i am um and put two and two together and that's the most exciting thing and i'll give you one simple example in in one of his translations there's a beautiful um there's a reference to Inanna and Dumuzi, and how Inanna takes Dumuzi to the deep Abzu. Um, oh, first, then you got to also ask yourself, well, where is the Abzu? What is the Abzu? And, and clearly, the Abzu is where the gold came from. That's referred to all the time. So now we got to reverse engineer this thing and ask ourselves, okay, where did the gold come from? Because if we can find where all the gold came from, then that must surely be the Abzu. So by reverse. Um, you know, interpreting this information, finding the gold, and realizing that the Abzu is in Southern Africa, and and I'd like to come back to that in more detail. And and then when you read these passages, like Inanna t- took Dumuzi's body to the deep Abzu, where she buried him on the edge of a cliff, in the land of the black people, and you read stuff like that, you you go, okay, hold on, this is very important stuff because we've got what I believe to be Dumuzi's grave right there. And then there's another passage that that. The, the translation. Now, the reason I'm saying this to you, because when Sitchin was translating this stuff and writing this, he had no idea that we'll be finding these places, you know, several decades later.
1: So it's and, forensic history, basically.
2: Exactly. And for me, one of the exciting ones is the reference to, to what I originally called Adam's Calendar, the, mm-hmm. the calendar site that is very sacred with African shaman and African wise men and knowledge keepers of indigenous knowledge, uh, people like Credo Mutwa and many others uh, like mm-hmm. him. Obviously, a lot of people know about Credo Mutwa, but he's not the only one. There are many other wise shaman and, and sangomas and medicine men and African indigenous knowledge keepers that have as much knowledge as Credo, but they just don't go out and, and write books about it. <laughs> so
1: Absolutely. Uh,
2: and and then there's a beautiful uh, translation um, about Adam's calendar, and uh, johan Heino is the guy that thank god for johan because he found or rediscovered uh, adam's calendar in 2003 through a, a fluke of uh accidents or, or Just
1: flying pilot. over it or
2: yeah he, he flew over it uh an airplane crashed one of his one of his pilots he's involved in firefighting forestry firefighting and one of his pilots went down and they went looking for the pilot who was hanging on the edge of a cliff survived the crash and and as they were flying, uh, looking at the scene, he saw this the circular uh, arrangement of, of monoliths coming, you know, right on the edge of the cliff. And he said to himself, "Hold on, that is not a natural rock formation." Right. And he came back the next day and started measuring it and analyzing it, realized that it's aligned with the you know, solstices, equinoxes, sunrises, and etc. And and then five years later, after exhaustively going to our friends at universities and the academics, they kept on telling him that he's an idiot, you know, leave us alone. Um, then he Is met me. Is that
1: right? Yeah. Huh, that's interesting that uh, if it's obvious that it's it's not a natural formation, why would academia shun him this way?
2: They, they, it just because the age, immediately the age comes in and plays a, uh. uh, a trip it's a trip, trip up, a trip mechanism for the mainstream academia because the age automatically tells you that this comes from a prehistoric and ancient time that nothing should have been there, right. because that's what they teach in the history books. They tell us that southern Africa was a sparsely populated and a you know continent uh, before a thousand years ago. Nothing much was going on there. Um, but so I just want to come back to this passage in the Sumerian tablets and how it links to Zachariah Sitchin, and this is the beautiful thing when you read his work and you've been exposed to the ancient ruins in southern Africa, the more you go and walk the mountains and pick up artifacts and and study them from all kinds of perspectives and try and keep an open and a scientific approach to it as, uh, as well as a metaphysical approach because this thing has to be studied from every possible angle. If you exclude any, any possible information, no matter how strange that information may be, you will be denying yourself from finding the truth. Um, so there's this translation that says, that 40 shar, after arriving on Earth... Enki built himself a special place of observing in the deep abzu on the edge of a cliff south of, the, of his abode in the north and the peaks, and the Twin Peaks or something like that, something to like the Twin Peaks or the peak further up in Africa. And then you realize that Adam's calendar is actually Enki's calendar that is linked to Great Zimbabwe and the Great Pyramid because they're all built exactly on, on the 31 degrees east longitudinal line uh, or along, along the 31 degrees longitudinal line. And there is, a, there is a, a very specific passage in Zachary Sitchin's translations that refers to this, and it's spectacular when you find these kind of cross-references.
1: Absolutely. And I remember my last question to, to Sakuraya. I said, Sakharaya, many people don't know that in 1983, NASA astronomers found a 10th planet in our solar system and are so sure about it that the only thing left is to name it. Is this Nibiru? And why isn't this information more public? And his answer was...
0: Ask the government. Well, I suppose the question is, what would be the consequences if it's admitted? Yes. Can you speculate? Yeah. Well, I don't know if I were uh, responsible as as a government is, uh, I might also hesitate in being so candid. There are all kinds of consequences, uh, political, religious. I suppose, uh, especially religious, are the touchy uh, issue here. Do you have any comment about this?
2: Um. I. I normally steer away from the the discussion of Nibiru because there are so many stories flying around about Nibiru and the 10th planet and, and so forth. And, you know, is it part of a brown dwarf solar system? Is it just a rogue planet? Uh, is it? Has it got its own little solar system that, you know, with other moons and things around it? Um, is it a planet that was stolen from another solar system, captured accidentally? All these kind of questions. And uh, we, uh, I think, personally, I don't have anything that resonates with me right now. And I go very strongly on gut feeling. Right. Um, things have to resonate with me, and it, it has to fall into place with the, the, all the other information that I've got. Uh, for me to be able to say, okay, this sounds like it could be the thing. Let me explore that. At this stage, uh, I believe that there is a planet like Nibiru or planet called Nibiru. Uh, where it is and when we're going to see it, I'm not sure if it is coming from the south, like uh, a lot of the translations suggest that it comes from the south, so you can only really see it approaching from the south pole. Uh, or if you're very, very low in the Southern Hemisphere, um, then it'll be a surprise. And then, obviously, the the mysterious questions come up. Why? What is the Southern Pole Telescope doing? Is that right. what they're looking at? Um, all these interesting questions pop up, and the information seems to be so well-guarded and so well-controlled that when you see information leak out, um, that that claims to be information regarding Nibiru and you know images from the southern pole telescope and so forth i would love to believe that but at this stage i i, I don't have any enough information to say okay well that's definitely it you know
1: it's a minefield of disinformation, uh, misinformation out there, so you have to really walk with care. But yeah. then you think of NASA restarting their telescopes in Argentina and Chile, and you have the Vatican with their largest telescope uh, in it, right here very close to me in Arizona. It really makes you wonder what they're looking uh, for. But do you think the Anunnaki? left, or did they, or at least some of them stayed, and they may be in control and responsible for our global condition today?
2: I'm convinced of that. Um, there, there is no reason why all the Anunnaki would have left. Um, you know, once the world was destroyed by the flood, uh, their need for gold just went up. They needed more gold. Um, you know the question the, the big question i'm always asked in my presentations why the gold Where do they need the gold
1: yes well yes. One,
2: you know once again that becomes a probably a a a, a one year debate <laughs> because right the the gold itself is such a mysterious uh, origins but the the and we can come back to that again because i've got some interesting information for you about gold and its links to to the planet and its energetic fields and so forth which may not have been discussed on your show before
1: Oh, absolutely.
2: Um, um, what, what it seems to me That after the flood The world was so deeply destroyed So c- completely destroyed by the, by the waters And we can see the evidence of that In the ruins of southern Africa And South Africa um, The sedimentation and so forth um, Not only that I believe that the geophysical forces Of whatever caused the flood And if it was indeed the planet Nibiru That came so close to the earth um, that's what the Sumerian tablets suggest, um, that it caused the Antarctic ice sheets to slide into the ocean and caused these giant tidal waves that swept across the, the world like a giant you know, rubber band moving from south to north and probably bouncing back again, and, and maybe even up again. Um, destroying the world after that, the, the Anunnaki needed more gold, and that's very clearly spelled out in the, in the Sumerian tablets. And the the verification of the Sumerian tablets is a very interesting and an important thing. And once again, there are little fragments of hints and clues that I'm starting to pick up that make me believe absolutely that the Sumerian tablets are accurate and true. And I'll I'll talk about some of those as well. Um, the the gold thing after the flood. Uh, Once again, if it is true that that Nibiru comes in and out very quickly around the sun, and, you know, once it's on its way out, those that want to get on it better get on it. Otherwise, they're going to miss the bus. Right. So so those Anunnaki that wanted to get off planet did that, and the others remained to continue with the gold mining operations because they needed more gold. It is at that point in time, after the flood, some 12,000 or so years ago, um, that we suddenly start seeing the rapid urbanization and rise of civilizations, or what we call civilization today, but is far removed from the natural order of things. And your very first question is how are we being controlled and get a job and all that stuff. That, in my opinion, started after the flood, when the Anunnaki, as a Sumerian tablet say, when heaven was lowered to earth, uh, when sorry, when kingdom was lowered to earth from heaven, and kings and priests were appointed, and and people were divided into groups and civilizations, and taught how to write, and how to how to arrange themselves, organize themselves, and the control systems started to be implemented, the same control systems that we are suffering from today.
1: Did the real controllers choose and appoint the elite? High priests and royal bloodlines as their managers.
2: Yeah, um, the that's that's how I see it. I see the the Anunnaki remnants or those that remained um, appointed their their leaders on Earth. They chose them among from among the people. Uh, Abraham would have been one such individual, and various others in Sumeria and so forth. And they appointed those as the the gatekeepers and the, those guys that would make sure that things were done and would control the other humans. They started the whole practice of, of uh, temple building and, and worshipping, real uh, and, and sacrifice and offerings to the gods. Uh, and the temples all over the Near East and, and were built. Hundreds and thousands of temples were built to the different gods and uh and and so the so the gods then would would be like um you know every god there would be a god responsible or or a, or somebody that would come to every town and every city, every village, and there would be a temple for them built by the people there'd be specific instructions of what food they needed to serve them, how to serve that food, how to prepare it um, it's a spectacular story, but what I find fascinating is the whole link to the Sumerians and the Sumerian tablets and the Sumerian translations. It is now absolutely clear to me that these Sumerian people, um, since we now believe they were the first people, or the evidence shows that they were the first civilization that acquired the art of writing and capturing the information, they were also then given the first basic laws and to write down, and the legal systems that they started to write down that were then passed on and inherited by the, you know, from the Sumerians to the Assyrians to the uh, to the Egyptians to the, uh, but the Egyptians seem to have been evolving slightly separately uh, with similar kind of um, structures that were being put in place. Um, but then, from the Assyrians to the Greeks, and and the Greeks to the Romans, and then the Romans rewrote the law completely, and then and then they created the whole religious scenario with the Catholic Church in and 325. And, uh, and you start seeing the, the laying down of the rules and the control systems that were slowly but surely being pulled in to control the human race more and more and more until we get to today where the control is so extreme that you can't even cross borders. And we have been so separated and segregated as the human race that in the words that we use around our lifestyle, think about this, you know, we no, lo- no longer live in, uh, in, in the country or in houses, and we live in a- apartments, apart from each other, apartments. Right. <laughs> That's how segregated we've become.
1: Oh, absolutely. Speaking of gold, at the beginning of the show, we talked about the Holy Trinity of human questions. Now, there is a Holy Trinity of common denominators of human history, gold slavery, and the feather serpent, or the winged flying serpent. What have you found?
2: That is uh, what I, I normally call my little special holy trinity of, of common denominators, that you, right. you cannot separate human history from those three aspects. Gold we know already. Um, what I find very strange about gold, as we know, gold is the eternal obsession of humans. But even more interestingly, and this is the interesting thing that you've got to look at It's the the human obsession with gold is really interesting because it seems that humans um inherited their obsession with gold from their gods right and uh and this is where you start seeing the very obvious distinction between god with a big g the divine creator and and the source of of the the stuff in the universe or and the the gods with a small g the malicious uh, advanced beings that arrived on planet looking for gold, and they found it in abundance. And, um, and, and the one interesting um, reference to that is in the Bible, in Genesis 2. Um, and and you know people read this stuff all the time, preachers, millions of preachers around the world preach about this, but they don't stop and think about God's obsession with gold. And uh, in Genesis 2, when Adam had just been created... Um, God had just created the universe and all things in it and then created Adam. He had not yet created Eve. Eve had not yet been fashioned from his rib. Okay, so Adam is all alone on planet Earth, this vast, beautiful planet filled with animals and other beautiful stuff. And then God starts to tell Adam about this land called Havilah, where the land is good, the water is good, and there is gold. And you've got to ask yourself, okay, hold on, buddy. What's going on here? Yeah. Who is this God that is so obsessed with gold? And it's that mo- at, at that precise moment that you realize we are dealing with a God with a small g in that specific instance and not the divine creator of the universe um, and all things in it. And um, then on the, on the, uh, immediately after that, I mean, Adam had hardly been created, and, and uh, they start a family, then Eve comes along, and they start this family, yeah, how that family happened, we're not quite sure. And uh, and then, and very shortly after that, they start having slaves. Just suddenly out of nowhere, these slaves. They take slaves from. Well, where the hell do these slaves come from? Where did they get these people that they've enslaved to do their work for them? I find that an extremely unnatural. Activity from a new species on a planet that is very um, low in their level of consciousness that has very little ability to think for itself and yet they go and find slaves and create this whole thing called slavery. But it gets even more interesting and this slavery thing can be linked to every single ancient civilization. Since mankind was created, very shortly afterwards, they either were enslaved or they took other slaves and um, what's what's interesting about this is that um it is it seems to be a, a a bit of an idea that humans must have inherited from somewhere and not come up with it as, an, as an original thought. but it gets even more interesting when God starts to um, instruct some of his key humans and the his how to you know, treat the slaves yeah how to treat the slaves when they can beat them when they shouldn't beat them and when they can kill them under what conditions they can actually kill their slaves and you go hold on this is not quite the kind of god that i had in mind here right you know and uh, so the there's the gold aspect which suddenly god is a megalomaniac he wants gold and a gluttonous individual and um then he permits slavery after he says, I've created all, you all even and equal. These are the basic things. I'm, I'm now dealing with some real basic stuff for people that might be new to this. right? Um, and, and then we get to the winged serpent or the flying serpent. And this is where it gets really interesting because... Most ancient civilizations, right across from the Americas, South and Mesa and North America, you've got serpent worship, and there's talk of a flying serpent, or the winged serpent, or the feathered serpent. And you get throughout Europe and Ireland, and all the way into Asia. And in Asia, it becomes a dragon, but when you look at the dragon, you actually realize it's just a serpent with wings. And uh, and then you come into Africa in Egypt. There's serpent worship and activity in in South America, uh, in uh, in Australia, and so forth. But in Southern Africa, the serpent worship thing had always been a little vague, and I didn't quite see where the serpent worship came became a role player in Southern Africa until I found uh, once again what Kredo Mutwa pointed out to me: the very sacred serpent worship site in northern Botswana called Sodilo Hills and together with Adam's calendar or as I now call it Enki's calendar the Sodilo Hills is the most one of the two most sacred sites on earth so it's Sodilo Hills which is the serpent worship site in southern Africa where apparently according to the African knowledge keepers um, it's the creation cave of the human race all right. And remember that the Sumerian tablets and Sitchin's translations tell us about the laboratories in the Abzu, where they were trying to clone and experimented for an extended period of time with genetic cloning to try and create a creature and a humanoid being that could understand their command and perform these you know, menial tasks of mining gold, but could do it successfully without getting forgetful or going to war or becoming whatever. And uh, suddenly we find this serpent worship site in northern Botswana. And uh, and then the other site, Adam's calendar or Enki's calendar, is referred to as the site where heaven mated with Mother Earth where the human beings were actually where Emerged. the act yeah where the act of of uh, fertilization actually happened and um i believe it was at adam's calendar or enki's calendar um that was rediscovered by johann heiner in 2003 that's where the actual fertilization of the eggs of the anunnaki females took place um and uh, it wasn't a, a blood and guts and gore kind of splicing and dissecting thing. It was far more advanced technology, using transfer of, of information with lasers. Um, uh, as your audience will probably know, you know, laser beams will carry the genetic information from one, one fertilised egg into another and create the other, the other um, fertilised egg inside a, a, a womb, for example, to become, to carry the genetic information of the the fertilized egg through which the laser beam has shone. And uh, this kind of thing, I believe, happened at Adam's calendar. And this is the stuff that Crater Mutwa confirmed to me after he left me wondering about his cryptic clue for about a year. <laughs> I eventually figured it out, and I went back to him with great excitement. I said, is this what you meant? And he said, yes, this is what I meant.
1: For, for the audience, in a, in a few minutes, I would like you to talk more about Kudamutua because I've heard the name, and I know of you are very long interviews with them. But a lot of people may not know who he is. But since you're speaking of, of the God with the lowercase G, but religion call it a one God. But when you look up at the Egyptians, Elohim means the gods, right? So we gave it a, a meaning of a, a single one. Why did that change?
2: well that's that's obviously part of the manipulation process part of the part of the enslavement the indoctrination and the lies um because as you say elohim is a plural the gods so every time you read the word god in the bible you have to replace it with its original hebrew meaning elohim right. and elohim is is uh, is a plural and it refers to the gods the gods of the, of the near east that came down and created the humans, and gave them knowledge, and gave them civilization, and taught them to write, and 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 made them work in the gold mines. Uh, but you see, the 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 activities that were going on in the Near East after the flood were the rise of the Sumerian civilization and possibly a pre-Sumerian civilization that we we have not yet discovered, um, because from from our current understanding, the Sumerians only really uh, sort of started to come, come arise uh, into, into instant civilization out of nowhere with, with a full-blown understanding of writing and all that around 4,000 B.C. But it's quite possible that it happened earlier. We just haven't found the evidence for that. Um, but something must have happened between sort of 12,000 years ago after the flood and 6,000 years ago for that 6,000-year period where a lot of activity was taking place. It's a long period of time. And um, and maybe the foundation for the Sumerians comes from there. Uh, we need to look, you know, a, a lot lot more carefully at that. I believe the information is out there.
1: I just um, I, I want to understand. You say that for the first two hundred seventy thousand years, things were peaceful on Earth, yep. almost utopian. But it wasn't until after the flood that we see the attacks on the human race and the control mechanisms put in place. Why do you think happened then?
2: Well, you know pretty much a lot of the workforce got wiped out. All the people, all the, the, the 50 million odd people that were involved in the gold mining mm. um, city in southern Africa, the lost city of Enki, which is the name of my new book uh, that I'm just finishing now, um, that, that pro- provides the evidence of this vast gold mining civilization down there, Th- that got wiped out. And there weren't many people left on Earth. So they had to take what was left, restart a few of those gold mines in the Southern Hemisphere, um, do what they could, and, uh, and then um, carried on in small gold mining operations all over the world, wherever they found gold to be easily obtainable. And this is why you suddenly, I believe, you suddenly see the rise of the gold mining civilization in the Americas probably about twelve, thirteen thousand 13,000 years ago. Are because of the geophysical forces um, of that event that caused the flood that probably shifted some of the tectonic plates and made certain geological formations stick out of the ground and made the gold and the other minerals a lot more easier um, to reach
1: hmm. uh,
2: in, in some of those parts of the world, where previously they weren't that easy to reach. Um, it's, it's important to also... Um, Come back to that thing I mentioned earlier—that uh, little, sl- little translation from Sitchin about, you know, the, um, Enki built himself a, a special place of observing uh, at, at, on the edge of the cliff in the deep Abzu forty shah after arriving on Earth. Now that's a very important little clue, and these are the little clues that are the gems that I find and, and see if they fit into the greater puzzle without without conflicting with the existing information. And uh, and it's very exciting because when you do the calculations and 40 char after arriving on earth if you take sitchin's calculations that would work out to be around 285,000 years ago. And suddenly you go, "Hold on, that number fits perfectly the mitochondrial eve studies that tell us that you know anatomically modern humans suddenly appeared on Earth somewhere between two hundred and fifty and three hundred thousand years ago, and this little passage in the translations suggests that Enki built that calendar two hundred and eighty five thousand years ago, and it was at that calendar site um, where heaven mated with Mother Earth where the where the earthlings were created and uh, and it all starts to fall into place without anything conflicting with anything else.
1: And for the listeners, if correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't a year for the Anunnaki 3600 Earth years?
2: That's right. So if you take, you know, 40 Shah and you multiply it by 3600 years, you get a number, whatever that number is, um, and you subtract that from the, the total number of years that the Anunnaki were on, on Earth, according to Sitchin's calculations, you'll reach 285,000 years. Ago. And that's fascinating. Um, now, to get back to your other question about Credo Mutwa, for your yes. listeners that don't know who Credo is. Um, Credo is the probably the preeminent South African shaman. He's a Sanusi, the highest level of shaman um, that you can reach. He is a, a Sangoma, an African medicine man, the highest sang- level of Sangoma that you can become. And uh, And just he is an incredibly, incredibly wise man filled with knowledge beyond belief. And when I say knowledge of any kind and every kind, you can ask Kareem Mutwa about Sirius. You can ask him about the nature of reality. You can ask him about the Anunnaki, about the lizard people, about anything you can imagine. And he will give you a very clear and definitive description and an answer and talk about them for as long as you want. His knowledge is immense. It seems. What
1: was, be, what was the source of his knowledge?
2: That's a very good question. Um, I think he's a highly channeled individual. Mm. Uh, I believe a lot of his knowledge has come from thousands of years of shamanic teachings, passing down this indigenous information um, through, you know, the knowledge keepers, the indigenous knowledge keepers, for thousands of years. And as we know, it is not mythology; it is history. So. Um, this This is what uh, what credo has has shared with the world a lot of this information, and some of the information is quite um, is quite shocking uh, and I know David Icke has done a lot of work with Credo over the years yes. and um the important thing is that that credo well well his his famous book, the most famous book that I would recommend for your listeners to go get is is called Indaba, My Children. Um I think that book comes from the late 60s or early 70s if I'm not mistaken and um he made a lot of enemies when he wrote that book because he divulged a lot of secret shamanic teachings in that book which were not supposed to be divulged but I think he was overcome by a deep sense of of um guilt I guess uh, that he had this information and knowledge and he wanted to share that with with the world, because he felt the people needed to know this to be able to prepare themselves for what's to come and learn about the true history of of this planet.
1: Can you repeat the name of the book? And is it still available?
2: Absolutely. It's 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 a. It's, you can buy it all over the world. It's a. It's about 600 odd pages. It's a. It's a very. It's it's an in-depth book. It's called Indaba. It's I N D A B A in Daba, my children. And um, that'll give you a very good idea who Credo is and uh, the depth of his knowledge.
1: Thank you, thank you for for sharing that. And with Sitchin, he talks about that the Anunnaki live about, they don't live more than 23,000 years. I've always wondered if humans were placed here to live much, much, what can I say? We have uh, planned obsolescence, when you buy a car now, In early years, cars would last a long time. Then now, they last about five, seven years, and then you have to buy a new car. For us humans, it seems that when we really start evolving and waking up in an older age, we die. But there you have the Anunnaki living for thousands of years. Do you think this was specially done so that we could never get to the next level?
2: Absolutely. There's very um, specific um, phrases in the translation that refer to this that you know their years shall be so many uh, that that they do not come into full knowledge and understanding and uh, and the dna shall be controlled and manipulated the essence shall be taken out the essence of knowledge of of the you know the 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 tree of life or the the essence of life um, so it it explains in great detail in the sumerian tablets or in, in relative detail how they specifically manipulated the DNA and, and, and gave us the, the lack of understanding and knowledge. But this is where it gets really interesting. You can manipulate a species with genetic manipulations and dumb them down, which is what I believe happened to us, because they yes. needed to create a primitive slave species that didn't ask questions, that could obey commands, that could repeat those commands... You know, methodically and not get them wrong and not get bored and forget what they were doing. To do that they needed to give us a large frontal lobe because it's been shown in many interesting scientific studies that it's the frontal lobe that we have that allow us to perform those functions. And I think it's that frontal lobe that was specifically created with the genetic uh, manipulation to allow us to do this. But the moment you do that, you also create the time bomb that at some stage in the future that creature that you created because of its frontal lobe will start to consider his own consciousness and his own being which doesn't seem to happen with the other ape-like creatures that have much smaller frontal lobes than what we do and um i believe that's where the one of the problems came in obviously the other problem that you deal with is that once you have taken DNA, you can switch off some of the genes, which is clearly what they've done to us. You can fuse some of the chromosomes together from the ape creatures uh, because, you know, the, the ape, ape species have got 24 pairs of chromosomes. We've got 23 pairs of chromosomes. So somewhere along the line, something went wrong and, and some chromosomes were fused. This is what geneticists have suggested that I think it's chromosome number two and four that might have been fused together. And um, and they they refer to them as the deserts of our genetic, of our genetic uh, pool that there's very little information encoded in those. And you've got to say, well, why the hell is it there? <laughs> right. And and and, uh, and it's this frontal lobe that that I find fascinating is that that actually caused us to start asking questions, and growing into consciousness and higher levels of consciousness. And um, not only that, that we now know that our DNA is being activated by specific frequencies of light. Now, I am sure that the Anunnaki were aware of this. They knew this, and they knew that it was a time bomb that was ticking, and sooner or later, this creature was going to rise up and was going to become like them. And we see that in various specific you know, passages in the Bible, where the Tower of Babel is a great example. You know, If they can do this, they can become like us. And therefore, let us destroy their language. That is an incredibly important moment in the manipulation of human history. That's where the segregation started, the separation into different cultures, different language groups, different, you know, scattering people around the world and separating them because. If Imagine if we, as a species on this planet, all spoke one language, could all understand each other, could trace our language and our knowledge back to the biblical days. Well, then there'd be no mysteries, would there?
1: That's right. And I'm so glad you're talking about this because that was my next question. I can never understand. If we, you and I, were to go to another planet, more than likely, we could see... Population living in harmony, evolved millions of years ahead and living in one, let's not even call it country, one planet. But here well, we yeah. have the lines of demarcation everywhere. We have the differences of, of, of uh, the prejudice, the, the, the religions, thousands of them, uh, the, the language barriers. It seems that it's been planned so that it's the whole proverbial thing, divide and conquer. You keep people divided and you keep them weak without asking questions.
2: Absolutely. And then you start seeing the implementation of the control and the laws and the monetary fiscal policies, the economic policies that started being introduced by the Sumerians that we are now the victims of today. Mm -hmm. And in the beginning, um, because things had to have value, gold and silver were linked to the value of the money that was used. Originally, it was gold and silver, mostly silver that was used because, remember, the gold always belonged to the gods. It's an interesting little, a very interesting and an important little um, point because not often has gold being used as money. Gold coins were only minted for special occasions. It was mostly silver in the beginning. That was the silver shekel. was probably one of the first um, minted Uh, coins in the world but there were it it seems that there were others before that as well but it looks like it was silver that was used as a coin of currency but not gold because gold always belonged to the gods and humans weren't supposed to have gold because it wasn't theirs to have and um then we start seeing the implementation of of gold as a support of supportive um mechanism for this thing called money or currency that was created. Um, And uh, once they realized, and this is the beautiful thing, once the the control groups then went from the Anunnaki to the priests and the kings and the royal bloodlines that were established on the earth, right? And from the royal bloodlines, we get all the secret societies and, and the priests and the kings that were given the advanced knowledge by the Anunnaki and its It's possible, it is quite possible, and this is where it becomes a little bit gray as to who was doing the controlling and who is still doing the controlling and who actually shared the original information with the humans for the benefit of the human population, but that information was hijacked by those that were given it because they realized that through that they would have power and absolute control. And that's what's going on on Earth today. It is absolute control. You know, people that are that are unconscious of what's going on don't realize how absolute the control over humanity is. There are no accidents. There, there are no accidents. It is absolute control.
1: And that's why we need people like you to be able to go out there to be trained outside of. Of the academia matrix to be able to get this information and I've spoken to a few individuals like you who have been threatened in the past and uh, once we come back from our break I want to ask you that I also have so many questions because people are asking about 2012 there's yep. one camp that says that it's the end of one an age and the beginning of another one there's another camp that says it's gonna be another Y2K but this is completely a, a bad comparison would you agree
2: absolutely I've got some interesting um, information to tell you about 2012
1: Great. Tell us uh, how to get in touch with your work. You're doing this 28-city tour in the United States. How do people buy your books, go to see you in person?
2: Right. Uh, the, the easiest way is go to my website, uh, ZuluPlanet.com. Uh, that's Planet.com. Z-U-L-U Planet dot com. ZuluPlanet.com. And uh, click on the banner for it says USA Tour. And, uh, or you can just go straight to the blog spot. Uh, it's michael tellinger dot and it'll give you all the, the the cities the list of cities you can book online through paypal and um we are now on leg number six we just finished the fifth leg in tampa we came down from new york down the east coast uh did tampa last night um in two days time we're in austin texas then we move on to dallas and then right through arizona and new mexico and down to california and up the coast and um We have, so we have another, in fact, we have 30 cities in total because we've added Nanimo in Canada to to the list. So there there are 30 venues in total, three Canadian cities as well.
1: That's great. I feel so privileged. And there's so much information to cover in the second segment of our program. Folks, don't go anywhere. This is Mel guys. I'm here with Michael Tellinger, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. If you're not a member, just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest of the show. As a member, have you subscribed to the iTunes link? Let iTunes download all segments of each new show automatically. There's a link in the members section. Just click on it and let iTunes do the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more. Enjoy.
0: And you are listening to a wonderful radio interview conducted by Mel.